Yes, uh, welcome to the first ever live recording human subject podcast, also the keynote debrief for the Portland Clinical Research Professionals Conference, where, as I said, nothing will go wrong. Everybody will be here and we'll be able to hear all of the microphones. Uh, first off, in the interest of participant engagement, a reminder, uh, an important theme in clinical research, particularly in COVID days and going forward, is participant engagement. We want to engage the participants here. So we'd ask that you put questions in the chat and Kit Swartz will be selecting questions along the way and we'll invite you to answer those and ask those questions out loud so that your voices can truly be heard. We also may be posing questions from Ken to the audience and people may have a chance to raise their hand uh, and, uh, and ask those questions. I'm Jeff Smith. Uh, like many people here, my connection to clinical research is a very personal one, which I will, uh, I think, mention in the context of a question later. Our focus on the human subject is the future of clinical research. And if clinical research is the future of bioscience protocols and bioscience and health, then these discussions are about the future of the future. My co-pilot is Eric Smith. No relation comes from a long career working in clinical research policy and healthcare infrastructure within university systems. Eric, hello. And what are you excited about today, my friend? Hello, Jeff and everybody else in, in the uh, chat. I'm excited today to be broadcasting with a live audience from this conference. I think this is amazing. Um, this morning's keynote lecture focused on the impact of the pandemic and the future of clinical research, something that's on everyone's mind these days. On today's show, we'll be digging further into the conversation with our conference keynote speaker and one of our favorite guests on the podcast, Ken Getz. Ken Getz is one of our favorite guests already. He's the founder and board chair of CISCRIP, Center of Information and Study and Clinical Research Participation, also directs the Center for Study of Drug Development at Tufts. You know that because he talked to you earlier. He gave an awesome keynote lecture this morning. Ken, welcome back to the human subject. How you doing? Are you are you regretting anything you had to say earlier today? Do you want to correct the record on anything or how you feeling? I'm feeling great and uh, so happy to be here. Thank you guys for uh, for setting this up and just I always look forward to having a kind of a debrief. Usually people reach out to me with emails and uh, long after I've given a talk and so it's nice to be able to do this right after uh, we've had people have had a chance to think a little bit about the material that was presented. So uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to having a lively discussion. And I know you two gentlemen would have nothing less than that. So uh, I look forward to that. We were told when we started that people can be reticent to ask questions, put questions in the chat because either they don't want to share how smart they are or they're scared that someone might not recognize how smart they are. What we want to say is I can guarantee that whatever question you ask will not be anything uh, less relevant or dumber than something I might ask. So I please just encourage you to do that. But Ken, my first question is actually uh, is asking for a question. Is there something you're noodling on? Is something you're wanting feedback on? Again, that people could then put some of that feedback in the chat and or that way by way of raising your hand, essentially. Something that in the prep of your keynote, in the aftermath, or just generally what you're trying to wrestle with, a question you have that some of the august people gathered here might have thoughts to address. There are, and, and they all actually relate to the last two slides that I presented. Um, it's really uh, getting people to, to think hard about what, this what change really means for them. So, you know, getting sites to think for a moment and recognize that there probably will be more hidden costs than they've ever tried to recover. 
and how are they going to do that, right? Uh, that uh, it may be more difficult in the future to retain staff because workload is going to increase and people are going to need a, a, a much different skill set even than what we've seen in the past. People are going to have to be able to manage multiple technology vendors simultaneously, for example. So it's trying to get beneath the surface, and that's to, very candidly, that's the place where I haven't seen uh, much of the discussion go. People get very excited at the very high level changes that have occurred during the pandemic, but very few people are really focusing on the realities on the ground, what people are really encountering who have to deal with executing these trials and have to deal with trying to coordinate uh, all of these different technologies and teach their patients how to use it. And so it's, it's that level, Jeff, where I'm learning so much as I talk with more people. That's great. And as we ask people, as people join, we got a couple new people, we're asking for as much engagement as you want to tolerate, including your questions, put them in the chat, and then also your thoughts. And one, one of the things we just heard Ken say, if there were thoughts, and it's on our question list also, if there were thoughts among the people gathered about any best practices or emerging challenges in managing multiple technology vendors as you try to build sort of a, maybe even just a 21st century worthy uh, platform. But Eric, why don't we turn it back over to you? So Ken, you know, I want to ask something very potentially obvious, um, but I think it's good to just kind of set the stage. You presented this morning a great uh, lecture on how things are changing with the, the COVID-19 pandemic, how that shifts the industry. Um, I just want to ask, in your opinion, why is that important to have that conversation? Why can't we, when the pandemic is over, just return to business as usual? I think what it comes down to is uh, all of our desire to uh, continuously improve, to find ways of making things more efficient, make the experience for our patients better, you know, I, I, in my 30 years in this industry, I've never been in an environment where people said, that's it, we've done the best that we possibly can and there's nothing more that we need to fix or change. There's, there are always areas, and my data sort of showed that as well, right, uh, Eric? Uh, if you even just look at cycle times, even before the pandemic, how they've been rising over time and um, our success rates are the lowest they've ever been in our history. Dropout rates in our studies, especially oncology studies, are the are the highest they've ever been. So there's just ample places to go to look for, you know, opportunity to ask the question, can we do better? And I think the pandemic sort of um, it had among many other silver linings, as we like to call them, it sort of opened our eyes. Look at how we were able to compress the timeline. You know, that that was a real eye opener for people. And so I think it's pushing people to really ask the question, is this something that uh, we could leverage and apply when the pandemic is behind us? Clinical research is sort of an industry of change. By the way, Eric, you're, I think we're getting a little bit of a little bit of feedback on your end, and I'm appearing twice. The uh, the uh, you might see if there's headphones that you can get on that didn't show up in the tech check. Uh, what have been the biggest things maybe you have learned? Ken, you'd said something to us that you thought that a, uh, off camera, that the uh, decades long struggle uh, 
challenge in diversifying engagement uh, within rural communities and within communities of color has a chance to make real advancements thanks to hybrid trials, decentralized trials, and modern technology where people don't have to uh, exclusively use the clinical site. Uh, what has been anything along that vein that has given you some hope or any strong remaining challenge that is daunting? Um, I, you know, when it comes to diversity and inclusion, which is such an important topic all the time and even more, receiving a lot more attention now, I think the options that are introduced by being able to conduct trials in multiple uh, approaches or models simultaneously really presents uh, an unusual opportunity that we haven't had before. You know, suddenly you can offer a trial and for those who have access to a physical location and want to participate that way, it's available. For those who may not, uh, who may never have been able to participate because it was too far away, you know, there are remote and virtual approaches. It really opens the door to address a lot of the access issues, but it raises a lot of questions that I see many are, are trying to address as well, right? The infrastructure available to different communities is quite variable. There are people out there, you know, much to all of our surprise, there are people out there who don't have a good internet connection if they even have one at all. You know, there are people out there who uh, may be using a cell phone, but they have they really have no access to anything like a smartphone uh, technology. So um, offering multiple uh, models, multiple approaches can address some of that, but it means we're going to have to figure out how to accommodate even more preferences and requirements than we've had to in the past. Great. And I do want to get to the root cause. I know Eric has a question there also, but a follow up on that. The one simple, no, not simple. Yeah, simple, not easy. Way to think about resolving or at least addressing the digital divide is to provide tools, to provide equipment, is to give wearables, is to give, is to give phones. What is the current state of evolution within IRBs uh, to see how that might be viewed either as an an, un, an undue incentive that might taint a sample or a, or better viewed or differently viewed as a way to level the playing field among participants. Are people seeing challenges there? Are people seeing any uh, any growing balance there? They are. Uh, yeah, and I would hope that maybe some of our uh, some of the folks in the audience might even have a, a better perspective here, just like our a lot of the uh, regulatory agencies, a lot of ethical review committees really took a pivot when the pandemic hit and also looked for ways that they could provide even more proactive support to sites. They could review a protocol deviation and uh, provide feedback quickly so that the trial could either get up and running quickly or would continue. And I think the IRBs have generally been kind of uh, responding to the pivot the same way that uh, every member of the team has pivoted. But now what I'm starting to see, and Jeff, it's a really interesting question that you pose. Um, some ethical review committees are starting to say, uh, and this is more sort of anecdotal, uh, when, they, when new protocols are submitted for review, 
if they don't offer options that can accommodate patients who might not otherwise be have access to the trial, is there an issue? For those that are offering, as you said, uh, something really uh, fancy and jazzy, is that going to create any kind of uh, incentive here that is coercive in any way? Uh, so it, I, I, if anything, what I'm seeing is questions that might change what is scrutinized and reviewed in the future. No sort of definitive uh, position that's that's being taken. That's helpful. And I would just say, if people have, I just want to amplify what Ken said. He would love to, and we would all love to hear from any of the participants here. If you are seeing uh, changes to or evolution to or how you are wrestling with uh, getting technological tool access to participants, either using what they've got or getting them stuff if they don't have it. If anybody has anecdotes, lessons, or questions on that, that would be most welcome. Let's get to root causes people are putting in their questions. Uh, clinical research, in its essence, is an industry of change. Uh, many of your slides this morning demonstrated that changes are almost constant and inevitable, uh, certainly inevitable. How are the changes in the pandemic different from others we have seen? And that might be because they're more fleeting or more lasting. Yeah, and this is, um, it really depends on where you sit. I, I know that the two of you have your views on this as well. So I'll be curious to hear your thoughts. Um, I think uh, from the very beginning, I uh, really took the position that the adaptation, the pivoting that occurred during the pandemic is similar to what we have when we pilot something new that has really caught the attention of uh, the industry widely, right? When, uh, when we first uh, saw the introduction of uh, patient centricity, for example, every company under the sun wanted to experiment with uh, and pilot different approaches. But they didn't particularly resonate, as, as many people know. I'm sure a lot of the participants on this call. We're, as an industry, we have a lot of trouble taking a piloted initiative and moving it into sort of a mainstream innovation. That's why it takes, you know, 20, it took 20 plus years to achieve even two thirds of the uh, enterprise's use of EDC, for example or uh, interactive uh, voice response, or you could point to any innovation and show a very, very slow pace for its adoption. So that's kind of a long-winded way, Jeff, of saying that I, from where I sit at that uh, 30,000 foot level, I really saw a lot of the changes and pivots as one-time occurrence, a very exciting one that will introduce people to and give people more exposure, but that's where it, it would stop. And yet, as you know, there are movements underway where people are saying they will never go back to uh, doing a, a trial at a site again. And uh, so I, I would ask you guys, what, what are your thoughts about some of these very, very aspirational and pretty radical positions that some are talking about? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I will say, I think one area that this is different than changes we've seen in the past, and it, it doesn't really address your question, Ken, about the aspirational changes, um, but I do think it's very different because of the pace of change that's occurred here, right? I mean, I don't think that we have 
ever seen the pressures that we've seen with the pandemic to create change. And so, um, you know, it's been about a year now since, I guess a little over a year now, since we, we started uh, basically be, being given mandates to move to a new model of doing clinical trials in some ways, do, do a remote clinical trial in a lot of ways. Um, and that wasn't something that was optional <laughs> in a lot of cases. It was like, this is what you've got to do. And your slide showed that this is what you've got to do, or this is, or you're not going to be able to do this trial at this point. Um, that pace of change is completely unprecedented. And I can't imagine that that didn't, that didn't yield uh, a completely different outcome and dynamic than what we would normally see with changes, which are by and large optional changes being driven by market forces, right? It's interesting, Eric, you know, there there have been a few articles recently that have uh, drawn parallels with the Asian flu and how we quickly developed a vaccine for that back in the late 50s, early 60s. And some have pointed out that we were even faster then in responding and that, but to your point, it was a global health crisis. It was a necessity. And a lot of the things that were done then are so similar to what we've done now, but as soon as it was over, we slowly kind of moved back into a, maybe a, a slower cadence, right? A, a slower yeah. approach. It's really, it's a very interesting issue. We'll, we will certainly see how it plays out. For me and for my team, the, 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 it's exciting, but also frustrating that from this point forward, whenever we run another benchmark study, we'll have to point out that the year 2020 is kind of a reset, right? And so anything we're measuring after the pandemic hit and was resolved, we're gonna to have to rethink whether the same factors are at play uh, in those trends and those benchmarks versus pre-pandemic. Absolutely. Ken, another question for you. Oh, go ahead, Jeff. Well, I was gonna to respond to Ken's question uh, and it might spur further or Eric might pivot well to your next, which is, Another dynamic we have seen as we talk to people and observed ourselves is pent up change. I heard Eric say rate of change, but you also have, we were talking to somebody who was involved in the late 90s, 1996, I think is when they started at it, in working towards the adoption of electronic data capture. And the response they got when they were trying to urge that adoption is, oh, that's a great idea. We should totally not, not just be using clipboards for this stuff, uh, but the, and, and just putting it into, into data bins. But yeah, uh, data lake sounds really great do it on someone else's study. And it took a long time to get that to change. And I think now there've been people who've been working on innovations, probably including multiple people in the audience, and that now is the organizational excuse and the organizational impetus to take plans off the shelf and implement some of those plans. Uh, that's a, another dynamic that I've seen. Feel free to respond to that or Eric, fire away with your next question. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, it's a really interesting observation. And while this is perhaps more extensive than we've seen in the past, you, you can probably look, Jeff, at uh, any time sort of a new movement is introduced, when patient centricity was introduced, when a year, 10 years ago, when we were in another phase where diversity and inclusion was such a hot topic, that usually invites perhaps some of the most vocal and forward-thinking people, the earliest adopters. It gives them an opening to come in and really try to spur and facilitate more change. The pandemic has clearly created a massive opening for those people. 
and that it's an important role that they play. Uh, and I see your head nodding as well, Eric, but there are always people who are on the front line who hear a lot of this wishful and provocative and forward-looking thinking, but who also know that, that where the rubber meets the road, it's never as easy as it sounds, right? And I, I think, so there's a certain skepticism and a cynicism that also exists, and that group will sort of have its voice heard as we come out of the pandemic and settle back into our next uh, cadence. Eric, yeah. I, I see your head nodding, you know. Well, I, you know, the interesting thing to me, too, is I think it's, it's so difficult to predict some of the outcomes of these changes. And I'm struck a little bit by one of your slides. I wanted to ask you about it when I saw your keynote this morning. You had that slide that showed um, the, I don't remember exactly how many, but the biggest concerns for sites regarding adapting to the pandemic. And the two biggest things that you showed on that slide were patient recruitment enrollment and, and staffing. Uh, and from my perspective, that actually seems a little bit counterintuitive because to me, um, I would think when we're being pushed to do things in a more remote way and we're pushing work from home more, um, it seems like you would actually get more engagement and more enrollment because it's easier to reach those uh, rural areas. It's easier to reach people who, you know, potentially just can't take time out of their day to come and participate in a trial. So I guess a question for you is why do you have a sense of where those those concerns are coming from? Why that's something the sites are concerned with? Because it just seems so counterintuitive to me. Yeah, um, and this is a perfect uh, invitation for participants in our in our breakout. Um, a lot of sites uh, have been telling us that initially the pivot to remote and virtual there was a certain novelty to it, and more people were willing to try it. But a lot of sites are finding that now that things are starting to settle and they're pushing telemedicine, they're pushing e-consent, a lot of patients want to come in. A lot of patients are saying that they're not sure that a remote or virtual approach is exactly what would be ideal for them uh, in participating in a study. They want to have some visits in person. And so it, I, to your point, uh, Eric, it's never completely intuitive, right? Um, and I think it's in part because preferences, the preferences of patients in our studies and the ways that our sites operate are so nuanced, the communities we serve. And so I think all of this customization, if anything, sort of just speaks to more choice and our ability to accommodate it. Yeah, absolutely. On a scale of one to five, I'd go to the, uh, I'd go to the audience uh, and ask this. What I heard you say, Ken, was you, people go to webinars, right? They participate in conferences. They listen to talks like yours. They say, oh, that sounds great. And it might sound like something, you know, I, I've heard before that we're going to change things, but, you know, I still got to deal with the protocols and processes we have. I have to still deal with populations we actually work with. My, my hospital is not, my clinical research site is not moving up into the clouds. It's going to stay down here right on the ground where it belongs. We're going to have to do the real work on the ground. I might just ask an easy one, uh, from anybody who is, from everybody in the chat or anybody who's willing, on a scale of one to five, one being, just put in a number uh, into the chat, one being, uh, well, I'll say five first, being lots of lasting change, meaningful, trans, you know, sort of big transformation, one being essentially no change beyond what might be typical. What is your guess or what are you seeing in your place about what change you're anticipating, right? Five, lots of change, one little change. That might be an easy way for people to at least make sure their chat is working 
uh, and they can go ahead and put in those put in those numbers and we might even do a little bit of follow-up we heard from sandra put in a three uh, and that may be an anchoring number it's a good safe number uh trina trina went up to 3.5 john cook is a little more pessimistic he went down to a two right now uh, melanie that at three i don't know if anybody's going to Go lower than two right now. The price is white, right? To win the the oven, you win an oven if you get the if you get the correct answer. We know the correct answer, and if you get it, you get uh, various wonderful prizes. So you know, I had another another quick question for you from your slides, Ken. I was a little surprised with the slide you showed this morning, marking an increase in perception that trials are unsafe, um, because that implies. Well, the implication in the slide that I got, maybe it's not what you meant to imply, was that that may be due to increased concerns about the drug development process. Uh, and I see you nodding your head. Um, what do you think the root cause of that has been related to the pandemic? Yeah, I think because that is a study that was conducted right in the heart of the lockdown period, Eric, that it might, a lot of it might be the fear of, uh, of uh, uh, transmission of the coronavirus. So people are nervous about, about venturing out of their home and, and uh, participating in a study or having someone come to their home to do a visit, that sort of thing. Um, but uh, you know, when Syscript ran the study, I think they found sort of uh, some comments from people who said that uh, this accelerated approach, it, I really have questions about how how safe clinical trials uh, are in general? Are we are we just uh, doing them so much faster, and we're cutting corners? And what are you what are you seeing as the most effective answer? I know everybody's been up against that. Uh, what is the uh, uh, what are you hearing as the best responses to that? Yeah, it that is a really hard uh, question to answer. Um, none of the responses that we've seen seem to be working particularly well, right? The CDC and the NIH are try to sort of uh, focus on the, you know, listen to the science and do your part, right? The, those are the messages and it's not resonating with a lot of people. Many are, uh, many are thinking now uh, in the US in particular, where I think we're up around 40% uh, uh, have been vaccinated uh, nationwide the the view has been for many now i'm just going to wait and see right we don't have enough of a history with the vaccine so i'm just going to i'm just going to wait for another you know 6 months to see if there are any side effects that are reported and of course when you see uh that there are manufacturing issues or there is an adverse reaction that's been recognized like the blood clotting with the uh AstraZeneca and J&J uh, &J vaccines, that feeds that sort of uh, view. Uh, so the best response we have found is to just be as transparent and respectful as possible, but it doesn't seem to be, you know, when you look at the science and you look at the data, many of the people who have taken the position that it's unsafe won't be convinced by that data. Right. It's not part of it. It's it is not coming from place merely of reasoned analysis necessarily. Right. Uh, I want to go to a couple of the. I want to go to a couple of the comments. Jess Stanley, who does not have a microphone, so we can't call on Jess, said a few things have been easier to do remotely, like quick check-in visits. But anything more complex is taking more time, or participants are tired or frustrating with do, frustrated with doing everything online. I wonder 
is this both a time where people will gain comfort with doing things online and a time when people will recrave human connection and clamor to drive more and more hours to visit their clinician? Absolutely, and we're already seeing that. Um, more patients have accessed their health record through their own health portal during the pandemic than ever before in our history. Wow. And that has opened the door for real world evidence, right? Where the patients could actually direct the aggregation of their own data and the use of their own data. But at the same time, a lot of people are saying, oh, well, I don't wanna replace my opportunity to kind of be in a room with a, a healthcare professional or with the study staff. And so I'm, some patients have said I'm reluctant to allow access to my data without there being more of a relationship or an exchange. And I'll, I'll call it Kit. Kit, if there's anybody you want us to go to, of course, please uh, tell us to do whatever you choose. I am noticing that our highest bid on the one to five, how much change was from Trina. Trina, I hope I, I think it's Lowther. I may be mispronouncing your name. Uh, if you're willing to unmute your microphone and turn, you know, turn your microphone on and and offer any change you are seeing or lasting change you're anticipating. Did that work? Trina, are you there? Oh, Trina doesn't have a mic. Oh, Trina is no mic as well. All right. Well, let's go to let's go to let's go to the flip side view. Well, no, let's go to Melanie. I want to start there. Melanie Abraham, uh, if you have a microphone. Uh, what changes are you seeing and or what lasting changes are you anticipating? Melanie Abraham, you want to try turning on your mic? Maybe nobody has a mic. Going once, going twice. Oh, <laughs> Melanie yeah, also she, has no she has no mic. I've tried to unmute um, both of these folks and they don't have that ability. Sorry. All right, great. Oh, no, it's all right. That's great. I'm going to try again. I'm going to try one more time. Third time here. Sandra. Sandra, do you have a mic? Well, that that was an experiment. It was we'll call it we'll call it a preclinical experiment, but that was an experiment. Uh, Eric, why don't you ask your next question? Uh, sure. So, um, you know, Ken, you've been on our program before. We, we try to do uh, little individual segments, and one of those segments we do is uh, called the crystal ball, where we try to look at conversations about the future of the future, because clinical research is really the future of medicine. Um, so a lot of your lecture this morning focused on the rise of technology. You even showed a picture showing a robotic arm. So my question is, Ken, how long does humanity have before the Terminators take over? <laughs> Just joking aside, how long do you, do you foresee a future where we have... Um, AI or bots taking the place of clinical research coordinators or staff? At this point, um, and it's a fascinating uh, issue, at this point, I, um, I have yet to see any indication that it will replace uh, a specific task or personnel, including even um, a lot of the remote monitoring uh, that is performed but the size and the volume of data has gotten so large that it can only it can only be analyzed with the assistance of uh, machine learning and augmented analytics, whether it's uh, using uh, AI or or even just sophisticated statistical techniques. So that's the most remarkable thing. You know, I, I showed you that one uh, 
data point where 15 years ago, we were gathering on average less than half a million data points. And I remember when I used to show that slide, people would fall off their chairs because they thought it was just such a remarkable volume. And in literally a relatively short span of time, we're collecting seven times that amount, and that's the average. We've seen some studies that are collecting more than 10 million data points. Many of them are trials in oncology where you have really sophisticated uh, study designs and you have uh, including crossover and master protocol designs. And it's just, and many of them are now using real world evidence and data coming from all those diverse sources that I listed. The only way that they can handle the, the richness and the volume of the data and analyze it appropriately is with some type of assistance. So on that note, because that was, I remember that slide, that was another one that really piqued my interest. With all the extra data that's being collected, do you feel like there is a risk of misinterpretation of the data. You know, it's almost like the floodlight effect. We've got too much out there and we're gonna draw inappropriate conclusions from that. Yeah, so it's a big concern of mine as well. Um, and it gets to be even more concerning when you, when we recognize that often you may have multiple people analyzing the data simultaneously from different places, different external uh, providers who've been hired to conduct uh, analyses, data safety monitoring board, your own in internal team. So it, that there, you're inviting uh, the need to have multiple interpretations. Who's going to referee them? I mean, obviously the FDA is also going to look at the data and do their own analyses. So it's um, it, this is going to be uh, an area where I think AI and augmented analytics is also going to have to play an important part. Absolutely. Uh, I don't want to just be dominating our host conversation, Jeff. If you have questions, feel free to ask them. But I do have another one that, that comes to mind from your talk this morning about um, small sites being closed permanently due to the pandemic. Uh, that was news to me. I, mean, I guess it makes a lot of sense, but I hadn't really thought about that. You know, small sites in the industry they play a very specific role, as do large academic centers. Small sites tend to be more agile. They do a lot of enrollment. Um, what do you think that the long-term effects are of having small sites closed? And is that permanent? Maybe we'll see small sites come back as soon as as soon as the pandemic's over. Yeah, so um, for the last uh, 25, 30 years, the investigative site landscape has been full of small, low-volume, inexperienced uh, sites. In fact, um, we've published a lot of data showing really high turnover among investigative sites, many that will do one trial. They're typically a community-based physician practice. They do one trial, and then they, they realize it's not nearly as easy as they thought, and they disappear. They never come back. And that was very common. We saw that in the 90s and the early 2000s. Lately, we've seen more sites that were introduced, not because they were looking to do clinical trials, but because they happen to be one of the only uh, community-based practices or academic-based practices that is actually treating patients with a very, very specific rare disease, for example. And it's those ones that are, to some extent, the most concerning. 
right? You'll always have some uh, physicians who are in clinical practice who are intrigued about joining the research enterprise and doing their first study. But it's the sites where we we can only access or reach patients with a new investigational treatment if we're able to partner with these rare disease uh, specialists. And because they lack the infrastructure as well, we're kind of losing the opportunity to engage them. What it's causing is a little bit more scale. More some We're seeing academic institutions playing a bigger role in supporting industry-funded research, a larger role than historically uh, observed before the pandemic. Um, so that's sort of one of the byproducts that there are groups that may have the patient volume, but um, you know we haven't looked at it close enough to know if it's applying across a large number of rare diseases. Why don't we go to Sandra's question? She now or her comment. She now says her mic is working. Sandra will try again. Uh, and you are going to comment on home healthcare visits and the need for further development there. Yes, can you hear me? Woohoo! Yes, go ahead. All right. Um, great. So I just, uh, that was just the first thing that came to mind when you were asking for the rating on for one through five. And I just remember that being really tricky as far as process change went, um, as far as scheduling visits and finding nurses that could actually um, reach the patients in parts of the state that were a bit more remote. And so in general, um, it, it hadn't it hadn't worked very well at all for the first few months. And um, since then, I haven't had the opportunity to schedule any more um, visits in remote areas. But initially, that I don't know if that's been ironed out for other people. It'd be interesting to hear um, how that's sort of been streamlined in, in other cases, but it's for the most part just really delayed a number of visits by uh, by many months, really. And and I just want to say that I've heard the same thing, uh, Sandra, and I also heard in a few instances, especially during the height of the pandemic, that sometimes the visits, the person who was uh, who who had been uh, 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 you know. Uh, Put in charge of that visit was unable to do it, and it was hard to have even a backup. So that created even more delays. Let's go to yeah, John Cook. At, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh no, I was going to say hopefully, um, you know, it, hopefully there's a better approach to it now um, because I know that it's it's a, a big need moving forward in terms of having that option, like you were referring to earlier. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sandra, and and thanks for also being the being the first participant for, for first participant voice in the conversation. Uh, John Cook, if your mic is working, uh, and you can take a pause beat if you need it, but turn on your mic if you could. You offered a two on our little one to five scale, and would be interested in hearing your perspective about any change you do see or the thing that the kind of change you see that feels fleeting. Okay. Um, well, first of all, uh, my first experiment is my mic working. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's working out. Awesome. Um, I rated it too because I'm seeing there's kind of the rumblings of changes beginning. And what I mean by that is we've got um, a uh, neurology project we're working on, for example, where we have a neurologist doing virtual visits with patients involving an iPad where you can watch someone's gait as they walk and things like that. Um, we've got a study looking at virtual consents where you can consent someone over a video conference versus in person. 
but these things are all kind of in the beta branch. Not, not a lot of them are online for every patient yet, um, and some of them are still kind of undergoing IRB reviews and things like that. So there's kind of the rumblings of change, which is why I put it at a, a two, not a one, but it's not really common yet, which is why I just put it at a two. That's very helpful, Ken. Ken, any response? The um, no, I think that uh, I think that that is something that we've seen just in terms of uh, how we've deployed a lot of these technologies over time. That initially they had a certain novelty to them, but uh, over time we started to see that they were appropriate in some places but not others. And do you remember I, there was a slide I showed where uh, the variation in the deployment of solutions was much wider than people thought when you looked at a large number of trials that continued during the pandemic, with telemedicine being high up there, but others surprisingly low, like the use of wearable devices and handheld uh, devices. And so I think a lot of that just addresses the sort of the realities and uh, the cost and the challenges of integrating that into our operating uh, practices. We did get in a thought from Trina. I think Trina's mic wasn't working, but her brain is. I'm curious what your thoughts are regarding the value added in continuing to add additional endpoints from various technologies in a trial. Does it outweigh the issues in implementation and troubleshooting at the site and the room this allows for error and protocol deviations? Can you read that again, Jeff? I'm just yes, trying to. I, I'll read it five times fast. Okay. Uh, I'm curious your thoughts and the value added in continuing to add additional endpoints from various technologies in a trial. Uh, and do you think that the benefits of multiple endpoints outweighs the issues in implementation at the site and that that might allow for error and protocol deviations on sort of the cost benefit of adding additional endpoints. And if, I yeah. am, if I'm butchering Trina's question, I'll, uh, no, I'll apologize. And, and uh, Trina, what a fascinating question. Um, it's, it's sort of an involved answer. And uh, let me see if I can sort of break it down. Um, first and foremost, uh, the more endpoints we add to a study, as you know, the more complex we make it. Um, even if they're you know, endpoints that are part of the same uh, overall uh, objective, supporting the same objective, but we're now using multiple technologies and, and other approaches, it all contributes to broadening the scope of the study. And ultimately that impacts the, uh, the execution and the performance of the trial. The, the, the other issue though is that often we tend to see a real mix of endpoints that are supported. And uh, if you look over time, you see that the vast majority of protocols support only one or two primary endpoints and just a few key secondary endpoints. So most of the endpoints are all tertiary or miscellaneous or exploratory. So to answer your question, and part of the issue is it depends on the endpoints that are being supported. If we could minimize all of that miscellaneous and tertiary effort, which often adds a lot of excess uh, complexity that is not essential to supporting the primary endpoints or objectives of the trial, then 
then it may have less of an impact, right? Not all endpoints are the same, I think is a very quick uh, response there. I, I, hopefully that helped answer your that sort of trade-off. If it's less essential, then the risk may be too high. And I think, you know, as someone who's designed protocols myself, and Ken, I know you, you've done that as well, um, it's always a balance, right? We're always balancing how much data do you want to collect here versus what can you practically do? Um, you know, ideally, if we if we didn't have to worry about having too much complexity, we'd run one trial that says, let's what is, what is the best mode of healthcare? And that would be done. And we'd solve the whole problem for the rest of, of life. Um, but I think that, you know, I think that that balance is something that will shift over time, it seems to me. And I'm wondering if, Ken, you've seen that when, when protocols are designed, do you expect that protocol design itself will be impacted greatly by, uh, learnings from the, from the pandemic, kind of along with what Trina's saying with complexity? Yes. Um, and that's, um, that's a really valuable insight. Uh, that often historically hasn't really been factored in, which is that often uh, what we learn and what we collect from one design should, in theory, result in improvements and even streamlining or more efficient protocol downstream. It doesn't always work quite that way, Eric. I know you know this as well. Often we see behaviors like uh, cutting and pasting a phase two a protocol into a phase three template without ever bothering to actually ask the question, what did we learn in phase two that would that would improve that would. the execution of a phase three, uh, you know, uh, uh, clinical trial approach. So it doesn't, in practice, it doesn't always, the lessons we learn don't always translate the way we hope that they would. One of the themes I heard you saying, and that I also heard in one of the, in one of the questions, is the grow the array of multiple technologies uh, for the user, uh, for the participant in the trial, for the uh, clinical research associate, they want a sort of an easy experience, right? And and there might be multiple solutions. Are you seeing a growing culture of willingness to integrate among technology providers, uh, among uh, among those technologies, so that innovation can happen? So people aren't necessarily stuck with the same tools if they're wanting to improve those tools, but at the same time, it's not getting, it's not growing complexity for the participant or for the, or for the researcher. Um, the answer that I see, I, I wonder if any, uh, if you guys have a similar view is yes and no. <laughs> yeah. So the well, then yes, we definitely agree. We, we yeah. <laughs> the yes yeah, part is that uh, some of the technology solutions providers have scaled. And they've already sort of uh, found ways to integrate. I'm talking like Oracle or Metadata Solutions, right, or Viva systems. You have some organizations that truly have, they have a diverse board, and a lot of the CROs as well, right? They have a diverse portfolio of uh, technologies and they have found ways to integrate them uh, sometimes. But you also see the entrance of so many new players, and especially during the pandemic, we saw easily, um, I want to say, a dozen companies that were all offering mobile apps that could enhance or support uh, patient participation, some from companies that have never been in clinical research before. And the, so that also sort of fragments the environment. 
And here's the interesting and bizarre part. We have some sponsors who want to go with the, the mature scaled company. And you often have companies that just love going with the next new flavor, right? The next new entrant, the next novel company that has somehow entered our industry. And so we never achieve uh, a sort of a level where that compatibility is sort of cuts across the broader landscape. And do you have a preference yourself? Do you, I mean, you answer the first one, yes or no. Maybe it's a simple, I mean, and you asked us for our thoughts. I would also say yes or no. And my, and my answer to this question would be roughly a synonym of yes or no. But the, uh, as you look at, do you have a preference betwixt the kind of rooting for the, the older players to uh, get a little more, uh, get a little more nimble to improve their technology, not just rely on sort of the market power they have to be able to keep making the same sales they've already they've already made, or do you have a preference for sort of new entrants who might shake that up and 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 be a little more nimble who might offer new innovations? Uh, you've sort of answered that question uh, with a synonym for yes and no, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that um, there are certain efficiencies that are gained when we give a, a solutions provider a chance to mature and scale with some reliable activity coming from users or from from mm -hmm. a, a, a sponsor. I, you know, you never want to cut off the opportunity for a new innovation to make its mark. But certainly the, the number of new entrants and the level of fragmentation is working against us. And typically, we don't give the more established vendors an easy time. You know, we don't really make it easy for them to scale. They have to find other ways of doing it by, uh, you know, raising more capital, getting a, a private equity investors so that they can ride out the all the time it's going to take to educate a market and... Uh, and drive adoption. It, it's not an easy or smooth process, and it's, there's a lot of waste and inefficiency that occurs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Eric, do you have a you have a question you want to move to next? Well, no, but I do have a comment on on that. I do think that um, Ken, you're right on, and I, I wonder if the big game changer that's coming down the the next 10 year pipeline will be something that allows for easier adoption of new technologies, because it seems to me that Adoption is, is continually the problem in this field. There's new things that pop out left and right all the time. Excuse me. And and we just don't have good ways of making the barrier to entry uh, and the barrier to adoption for the sites um, easier. I think if it was easier, um, we would see a lot more innovation. You know, Eric, that is, if there's a, a single takeaway in our discussion today, I think you're you've really sort of pinpointed it, and it's what it, it's what is meant now when we talk about being agile, right? It's figuring out a game plan. How can each site, how can each organization put in place a plan that allows them to accommodate all of these uh, these incompatible activities and solutions? You know, somewhere within all of the ways that we've reacted to this. There's a way to manage it uh, so it's not as disruptive, right? And, and you know, if you look at uh, some of the reports that are coming out from McKinsey and some of the management consulting groups, 
they have great case examples of really large companies that have figured out that it's not um, it's not about just uh, removing complexity. It's about more smartly managing the potential disruptions that occur as a result of complexity. And I, I think I think there's a lot that sites can do, and they can. It'll teach them even uh, more about what they can ask for from sponsors to help them be more successful as an agile organization. Yeah, it's really the think. It's the work smarter, not harder philosophy that I think we need to pursue. Well, I was going to say, we do have a couple of quick comments uh, from our audience, if you want to read those, Jeff. And Cool. The uh, Yeah, I'm curious uh, if, the, this is from Sandra, in which sites project, uh, project manage their studies, and it's changed uh, due to COVID. For instance, utilizing a tool that staff members can interface more directly in real time versus standard Excel docs on a shared drive. I think that might be sort of integrated ePro and EDC is some of what I'm some of what I'm hearing from that, but I don't want to put words in Sandra's mouth. Uh, but any thought, any response to that? And then the follow-up question to that will be, is there a country that's doing nimble change in clinical research well, an exemplar? That from the inimitable kids. Uh, feel free to answer either or both of those in our closing minutes, Ken. So, uh, Sandra, I don't understand fully what you were getting at, but I think what you're suggesting is that there are probably relatively simple tools that we already have in place that could help us uh, manage a lot of this diversity and custom activity just more smartly, as Eric was saying. And at least it will help us anticipate what questions to ask, where the disruptions might most likely occur. And it's interesting because a lot of countries are doing the exact same thing in creating like a pandemic response plan that they can use in the future. So it, it, the pandemic is stimulating this sense that we have to put in place a way that we can manage uh, a lot of this uh, unexpected disruption more easily. Well, that's a nice tie-in to Kit's question, Ken. Do you know of a country that's doing that uh, particularly well? We don't. Um, I, I can't say there is a single one where you could point to it and say that's really a best practice. There are some countries that, as you, as most people know, have done a better job of managing the vaccination process. And like uh, Israel, for example, there are countries in uh, Scandinavia that have done a better job and they're monitoring uh, and they've already created a, a plan to help them be more nimble. But I, I, don't, I haven't seen anything that I can point to and say, this is the perfect model that, that we should use. Well, I want to say thank you so much. Uh, maybe our most important duty, other than giving people a chance to be heard and hearing from you, is to get out on time. And we are about uh, we are about to wrap. Uh, we will uh, we will be yeah got that wow Bria really appreciate it yeah we will be sharing the info on how to get we'll be launching the podcast in the next week or so we'll be sharing this and other episodes. Bria is not a plant. We appreciate her question nonetheless. Uh, want to say thank you to Eric Smith. Thank you to Kit, and thank you also to Ken Guest. Really enjoying, hope we have a chance next year to get together in live and in person. Really appreciate the organizers of this conference and this keynote debrief at the Portland Clinical Research Professionals Conference. Eric, any closing word from you, or Ken, any closing word from you? Just thank you so much. This was such a pleasure, as usual, guys. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ken. I think your, your keynote was enlightening, and this follow-up discussion was great. Great. Thanks, everybody. It is noon o'clock, and we are done on time.
The Human Subject is recorded in Portland, Oregon. Edited and produced by Kyle Curtis, supervising producer Amanda Brockman. I'm Jeff Smith, and on behalf of Eric Smith, my brother from, I don't know, some other people, thank you for listening. Please rate and review. You can find us online and visit www.thehumansubject.com. And you can send us an email to podcast at humansubject.com. Thanks again. Thank you.